This morning I want to look at the second part of the theme, well only the second part, I'm sure there's many more we need to do, uh, of the theme that we started last Sunday in our Being Human series and the theme is Being Human, Being Sexual Beings. First of all I want to just recap on what we looked at last week, um, partly for the benefit of those of you who weren't here and uh, also just remind you some of the ground that we covered I then want to look at just two issues this morning, and I'm really only obviously going to be able to touch on them. Uh, The first is singleness, and the second is uh, same-sex sexual relationships. Um, Now, we won't be coming back to this until the new year, really, just because of the way the program works and the things that are happening. Next Sunday is the church weekend. A couple of Sundays after that, I hope to be in Nepal, um, and at least one of those Sundays, spending the Sunday with Adrian and Sandra Boone in the church there in Pokhara. Uh, well, on the Saturday, they don't do church on a Sunday there, they do it on a Saturday. And um, I won't be back here until Sunday evening the 10th, when I do hope to be able to speak on Sunday evening the 10th, and probably tell you a bit about what's been happening in church life and things like that in Nepal. So the next time I'm actually up here at the front, really, on Sunday morning, will be the 17th, and that's going to be an Advent theme rather than a being human theme. But I would like to pick up some aspects of this in the new year. There's a, there is a great deal more to cover in this. Uh, as part of our Being Human series. So I'm not running away from it. I'm just running away for a wee while. Um, The second thing I want to say is I have appreciated the response and and, uh, feedback I've had from folks over the last week on last week's issue. And I'm quite sure that this uh, will cause you to think or uh, maybe to express opinions and views. Um, Please feel free to do so. Um, It's really helpful for me to hear what is either helpful or unhelpful in what I say to hear what you think is right or what is wrong in what I say. Preaching, um, in our understanding of preaching here, is not about me speaking uh, with the final authority on every issue. What I do as a preacher is supposed to take biblical themes or biblical passages and bring them, and you as a Christian are supposed to then do your biblical homework on them too um, and decide whether what the preacher says is sound or otherwise. It's a very dangerous thing just to believe everything you hear from the pulpit. But those of you who have been here for years know that. (laughs) Let me just recap briefly on what we talked about last week. We talked about being human beings, sexual beings. We talked about the fact that that is the condition um, that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves male and female, made in the image of God by God's purpose and God's design. But we also looked at some of the contradictions that throws up for us as practicing Christians. How we believe in and sing about God's goodness, yet sometimes feel a deep sense of isolation in terms of our sexuality, either the lack of expression of it or our confusion with it. We sing of God's holiness, and yet we struggle with our own sinfulness, not least in the area of our own sexuality. We sing and believe in God's forgiveness, but we struggle with the need to be forgiven, our rebelliousness and our wrongdoing. We sing of God's love, and yet in truth, We may, as individuals, feel a measure of loneliness. We come together to sing, and looking at you, the phrase, butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, springs to mind. And yet we recognize that as individuals, we struggle in different ways, not least in the area of our sexuality, and are very glad that it's the words of the songs that are on the screen, and not the words that are running around in our heads. And consequently, sometimes as Christians, we deal with these things, and we find ourselves living with a kind of status quo of permanent deceit and that we're not really quite sure how to resolve some of these tensions and that can be a real problem. 
some conclusions that we drew last week. We thought about how we are created as sexual beings by God, but that sexual experience is not the measure of our worth as a human being. Our society seems to give a very different message. Our society basically seems to say to us at every level and at every possible turn that if you are not sexually experienced or sexually active, then you don't really have very much worth as a human being. It's preached at our young people and it's preached at you. As we thought last week, it's a transgenerational issue now. It's not just a matter of teenage peer pressure. We also looked at how the Bible speaks of marriage as the proper setting for sexual expression as one of the basic principles on which we operate and how we have to face the reality of our fallenness and not expect to find some kind of victorious non-sexual or asexual life ahead of us until we die. That's most unlikely. Um, You are the way God made you and we wrestle with the issues uh, of our sexuality. So let's not be unrealistic about it, let's be realistic about it. And I do appreciate the fact that, apart from anything else, it's possible for me to address these issues so straightforwardly in this church as part and parcel of that seeking to wrestle with these things. This morning, as I say, I want to touch on two things. And I need to put a number of disclaimers out here fast. First of all, I have very little experience. uh, Sorry, I'll reword that. I have no experience of either of these. This will bore you to tears, but um, Dorothy and I met when I was 15 and she was 14. We went to the same school, Regent House in Newtonards, and we have been an item ever since. That's a very long time ago, given that Dorothy's 60... Oh, no, I can't remember what We actually have no experience of singleness in any meaningful way, shape, or form. At all. Okay? So it's not that I can bear my heart and talk about how I struggled with this up until I was the age of 21 or something like that. We got married when I was 21, Dorothy was 20. Uh, We just have no experience of it. No idea, okay? Big disclaimer out there. But in pastoral life, you see things, you hear things, and you maybe begin to get a sense. And um, that's the background I'm coming from as I touch on this issue. And I do very much want to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, On the whole issue of same-sex sexual relationships... It's not an issue that as a church um, we have had to confront publicly or openly. And I say that because there is always the possibility that sometime we will. Sometime there may be people who come here or who want to come here who want to be recognized as a partnership. And it's therefore not an issue that I have a great deal of pastoral experience in. I have met quite a number of people who either wrestle with their sexuality and their sexual orientation or um, whose experience is that of being homosexual, uh, which is another subject in more detail we'll come to later on. Um, But we haven't really had to deal much with this, but it is a big issue. And therefore, I'm setting a disclaimer out there too. I come here with some thinking done on it. I come here having read what some other people have said, but I'm pretty ignorant on these subjects in personal terms. So let's think a little bit about singleness if we are made sexual and if we are made male and female to be complementary what does that say about people who are unmarried in the Old Testament scripture as you read through the Old Testament you get the clear sense that for a person and particularly a woman to remain unmarried uh, was a shame It was a sense of shame on her and her family 
and carried with it, obviously, was the sense of shame in connection with childlessness. I think of some of the incidents in the Old Testament, one which I always consider to be quite humorous, is the one of Jacob falling in love uh, with Rachel and uh, wanting to marry her and all starry-eyed and discovering that her wily old father had actually in the night married him off to Leah, her sister. Uh, because there was no way in which in the culture there was the possibility of the older girl being left single while the younger one was married. And so he ended up with both of them. In many cultures today, it is still a matter of public shame if someone is unmarried, either male or female, within the family. And there are many Christian communities in which this is an issue and in which they have to deal with these subjects. But even if the issue for us and the context for us is not one of public shame, singleness is nonetheless problematic for many people in our society and in church life. And the question remains, if we are made as sexual beings and if male and female are made to be complementary, what does that say about the unmarried? It seems that for those who are single, there are three broad and often overlapping categories in terms of how they address this and deal with this. There are those who are very content with their singleness, those who are very unhappy about it and discontent, and those who manage it in between these two extremes. Some people are content with their singleness for a variety of reasons. It may be that they've had previous bad experiences in relationships and just aren't going there again and are quite content about it. It may be that there's just genuinely no interest, reinforced by the tragic lives of some of the marrieds that they know. Some have a clear sense that singleness is a satisfactory way of life for them and are perfectly content with it. And some have a strong sense of vocation in it, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. And for some, their sexual orientation would be towards those of their own sex and their conviction that such a relationship would be unacceptable as a Christian is something with which they're content to live as a single person. Those who are discontent may be so for a combination of reasons. Loneliness, quite simply. Especially as they project their lives into a potentially scary, lonely old age. They may be discontent because they are, quite simply, sexually frustrated. Feeling cheated at the lack of opportunity for sexual expression. They may be discontent simply because of the ache of companionship. Not quite the same as loneliness. It's more an understanding of what lies at the root of their loneliness. A lack of the companionship which they sense is possible to have in life. Those who manage their situation move very often between being content and discontent. But they address their situation and plan their lives accordingly. They seek to maintain order in their independence or maintain relationships with family and friends which is very often more the task of the single person to do than others because others don't seem to notice or they manage by negotiating their way through the shifting landscape of their friends changing relationships as they become engaged, married and sometimes divorced it does seem to me that there's virtually no difference in the experience of men and women in regard to singleness the degree of contentedness or discontent can be just exactly the same. The sense of pain, or less commonly, indifference, can be just as great in men and in women. And a related issue with singleness is the struggle with childlessness. 
It's not an area I'm going to get into this morning, but it is an area wrongly associated only with marrieds who, for whatever reason, are unable to conceive. Childlessness is as big an issue for many single people. In fact, for some, it is the issue. We associate, for example, IVF procedures carried out on and by single women as a reactionary feminist expression of the rejection of the need for a male companion. That may not be the case. And there are certainly many incidents of single people adopting children as a means of constructively addressing, in a very courageous and constructive way, the issue of singleness and childlessness. So I'd like to make a couple of comments in the light of these things. The first is by way of threat. A threat aimed at marrieds who thoughtlessly tease, humiliate and patronise single people. I know I don't have the authority to do it, but if I did, I'd kick out of the church anyone who teases single women about when they're going to get a man or single men about when they're going to get a woman. There are single people who really don't care about that kind of ribbing. Forgive the pun. There are others for whom it is just salt in the wound or a twist of the knife in the back. As far as I'm concerned, it's forbidden in this church. I know it's not written in our constitution, but it's forbidden. That's not to say that it is forbidden to talk about the issue of singleness. Quite the opposite. That I would want to encourage. Because if we talked about it, there would be less crassness and less hurt. So next time you're about to joke or rib someone about being single, remember, it's banned here. And secondly, if you don't have the courage to ask how singleness feels and how the person feels about it, then the wisest course of action is to keep your mouth shut. The second thing on this theme of singleness I want to say is that the difference between the Old Testament disposition towards singleness and that of the New Testament is dramatic, and I had never really thought about it before. I can't for one minute believe that the Old Testament ever anticipated a celibate Messiah. It certainly anticipated a Messiah, but he was going to be a king. And Israel's experience of kingship is associated with a pretty high level of sexual activity and in producing heirs with as many sexual partners, be they wives or concubines, as was deemed necessary or desirable. That was Israel's experience of kingship. I cannot believe that Jewish people anticipated that the Messiah would necessarily be single and celibate. And yet the New Testament knows only of a single celibate Messiah. It makes no apology, gives no excuse, and offers no explanation. Jesus bursts on the stage of Judaism, single, womanless, and probably all the more of a threat in his society for that. Imagine what they thought of Jesus in his own day. Imagine the innuendos and whispering that went on about him. It's not a contemporary 20th and 21st century preoccupation to wonder if Jesus married or had a woman on the side. Now we have no record of it being vocalised to his face or to his disciples, but don't tell me it wasn't an issue 
or a talking point in his day. And Jesus, who was fully human and therefore entirely capable of a sexual relationship, remained unmarried and overturns any Old Testament concept of shame on singleness. Jesus dignifies, dare I say, deifies the status of being single and sets a corrective to the way we think about singleness, particularly if we tend to be patronizing. Paul develops this in his bold defense of the single status and his affirmation that some actually may have the gift of singleness and celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And whatever taboo there might have been on singleness in Old Testament culture or Jewish culture, it is gone in the new. God who made us in his image and made us male and female in the incarnation takes on the humanity he created and comes among us in one gender, but fully complete in his humanity. That, for me, is one of the most challenging things I've had to think about on this issue. There should be no doubt that every single person should understand that their worth is not measured by whether or not they are married, but by virtue of being made in the image of God. I understand that what I'm saying does not necessarily address the struggles that may be associated with singleness. But to those who are single and, who, and those who think there's something wrong with the unmarried and address singleness in a patronizing way, let me say it again. Worth is not measured by marital status any more than by the degree of sexual experience a person may have. In this church we pray for those who are sick and we talk about their sickness. We pray for those facing particular challenges. We pray for those with particular responsibilities and work. But we don't ever really talk about, never mind pray about, singleness and how people feel about it and how they find partners. Somehow that's something that should be addressed, something to come back to. So let me summarize. Human worth is defined by being made in the image of God. Not only are we made in God's image, but God has made us male and female. Our worth, though, does not come from the nature, sorry, our worth comes from the nature of his image and love for us in Christ, and not the outworking of our sexuality, either in terms of sexual experience or marriage. The second issue I want to raise this morning, and you'll appreciate I can only begin to raise these, is the issue of same-sex sexual relationships. And I can do a little more than outline some of the issues. I recognize I have both a great deal more work and thinking to do about this whole area, but I want to set out a few points. And in all of this, my context is the context of the Christian church and how we address these issues as Christians as opposed to the issues of public policy, which is another matter. It seems to me that the basic biblical issue is that sexual expression is intended for the the context of marriage. Celibacy is the calling of the unmarried, whether those of a heterosexual or a homosexual disposition. That seems to be the bottom line. Clearly, not everyone agrees. This little book written by Geoffrey John, called Permanent, Faithful and Stable, very clearly articulates 
the arguments for the acceptance of same-sex sexual relationships within the Christian tradition. The book is called Permanent, Faithful, Stable, and it begins with the statement, Homosexual relationships should be accepted and blessed by the church, provided that the quality and commitment of the relationship are the same as those expected of a Christian marriage. Geoffrey John also argues, um, the theological, ethical and sacramental status of such a partnership between two men or two women is comparable to that of a marriage, whether or not the word marriage is used to describe it. If you want to get a concise um, explanation of the views that are articulated within the Anglican tradition on this matter in regard to um, the acceptance and blessing of same-sex sexual relationships, you could do worse than read Geoffrey John's book. There's a lot of stuff in there that is very challenging, um, but it's the most concise, succinct expression of the issues I have come across. Uh, Geoffrey John's argument follows a number of tracks. He argues that conservative Christians are hypocritical on the issue of homosexuality. He argues, for example, that because they generally don't read the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 about head covering and the submission of women in that regard uh, as binding for today, uh, and they don't insist that women keep silent in the church, uh, but do insist on Paul's teaching on homosexuality, that they're simply hypocritical. He argues that sex is not merely about procreation, but about the expression of companionship. And he argues that if a homosexual relationship meets the standards required of marriage, it should be recognized and blessed accordingly, if it is permanent, faithful and stable. And constantly returning to this theme of permanent, faithful and stable, Geoffrey John argues that this is the core element of marriage as God intended it, and a same-sex relationship which is permanent, faithful and stable should be considered honorable and honored. Underlying his approach to the argument is a very different attitude to scripture and not surprisingly a very different attitude to sexuality. And I think a few comments need to be made about this. The first is that he and those who would share his line of argument seem to have a very different view on the inspiration and infallibility of scripture than we would have. His view assumes that the biblical text demonstrates a fair degree of ignorance on some of these issues. For example, he generally assumes that Paul's teaching uh, is degrading of women in regard to women. That Old Testament stories are primitive and of little help or relevance in addressing the contemporary world and contemporary understanding of, se- of human sexuality. He would argue that Paul is ignorant of the issues of sexual orientation and is only referring to heterosexuals choosing to indulge in homosexual activity in what is essentially an anti-Gentile polemic in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. He would say that the Bible's teaching about adultery and fornication is an attack on the issue of unfaithfulness and not all forms of sexual expression. Another comment that needs to be made is that in all of this he indulges in a contextualizing of an entirely different kind to conservative Christians. He confuses or fails to recognize the distinction that Scripture's teaching on sexual morality is set in a very different context to its teaching on propriety and worship and order in the church. His likening of the attitude to the issues of head covering in 1 Corinthians with attitudes to sexual morality is a bit crass and relies on a caricature of evangelical and traditional readings of Scripture. Discussion about the issues of propriety and worship are not the same thing as biblical teaching on the nature of human sexuality. It's one thing 
to understand what the scripture has to say about propriety of worship and the exercise of gift in the church, which includes a discussion on gender, and another to do with God's intention for humanity in regard to our creation as sexual beings and sexual conduct. For example, we distinguish between what we call creation ordinances and church ordinances. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was commanding the church in regard to communion to do this in remembrance of him. It was not enforceable or applicable to non-Christians. When Jesus speaks about marriage and adultery, as he does, for example, in Matthew 19 or in the Sermon on the Mount or in John 8, he's dealing with a creation ordinance, something God intended for all humanity. And the third thing that needs to be said about the kind of approach that Jeffrey John takes is that a core element of the argument that's made these days is that a same-sex relationship that is permanent, faithful and stable meets the criteria of marriage and should be honoured as marriage is honoured. And it has to be said that the Bible does not teach that what makes a marriage a marriage are the words permanent, faithful and stable. The Bible teaches that a marriage should be permanent, faithful and stable. But an unstable relationship is no less a marriage. Unfaithfulness does not of itself end a marriage or its obligations. Why? Because in biblical terms, a marriage is the coming together of a man and a woman. It is in this context, set out for us at the beginning in Genesis, reiterated by Jesus, that sexual intercourse is legitimate and honourable. Permanent, faithful, stable is the desirable biblical characteristic of marriage. The coming together of a man and woman in a covenant agreement witnessed and sanctioned by the community, fulfilling the biblical injunction to reproduce and using their sexual intimacy as a means of celebrating and expressing their commitment and love, is the biblical concept of marriage. Permanent, faithful, stable is the biblical standard for marriage. And in reality, can only ever be an aspiration. It can only ever be said to have existed when the couple have died. It cannot be an assumed. It cannot be assumed to be a sudden state into which people enter, and the basis on which a judgment is made as to the legitimacy or otherwise of their sexual behaviour. Same-sex sexual relationships are no different to extramarital relationships, whether before or during marriage. In Christian terms, reducing sexual, regarding sexual practice, homosexuals are no more discriminated against than single or married heterosexuals. Now some would argue that at least a single heterosexual person has the possibility of getting married and entering a life of companionship and sexual expression and that Christian teaching is unfair. To someone with the same sex orientation can't. Well, that raises quite a number of issues. raises issues on the, on the whole nature of homosexuality. Is it choice? Is it learned? Is it fixed? Is it genetic? All of which is the subject for another morning. And it raises a whole host of pastoral issues and issues about caring for and about people in the life of the church. But all I can say at this point is that if sexual orientation, and I'm using a big if, if sexual orientation is fixed, then the situation for homosexuals is no different than for someone with serious chronic physical illness, who finds it impossible to find a partner and marry, or no different than for those who marry and whether for psychological or physical reasons are unable to engage in sexual intercourse, but must remain faithful and sexually confident. 
Life is full of unfairness. No one group of people, for whatever reason, has the monopoly. So to summarize, same-sex sexual relationships are not acceptable in the Christian church. Whatever the state may say is acceptable to the state because our view of the inspiration and authority of Scripture means we consider Scripture to be competent and sufficient to guide us in these areas of human experience. We do not share the view that they didn't know what they were talking about. Secondly, our understanding of Scripture is that marriage is the proper context for sexual expression and that marriage is between a man and a woman. This is a creation ordinance. In addition, interpretation of Scripture requires a distinction to be made between church and creation ordinances and between what is fixed and what is an aspiration. And finally, relationships which are permanent, faithful, stable in intention, and we can say no more than that, can be many and varied. It is not the biblical criteria by which sexual activity can be considered valid. The context for that is marriage. As I said at the beginning of this, these are two issues, at least, which are hugely important. They affect the lives of people in this building. They affect the lives of many people that we know and increasingly are part of the discussion and debate in the public arena. As Christians, we cannot stick our head in the sand on these things. We've got to think about them and wrestle with them. And every church, at some stage, will encounter these issues in different kinds of ways. So whether the issue is singleness or whether the issue is same-sex relationships, it seems to me that there's a lot of thinking to be done as Christians about how we respond to these circumstances and these situations. And if what I've been saying this morning causes you more problems or raises more questions than answers, then please feel free to say so in whatever way is appropriate, whether you put it on paper or put it in an email or put me in a corner. I really don't mind. It's important that I get to hear it. Because these are important issues that affect how we manage our life together as Christians and how we manage our life together in a wider society and context. So if I have caused you any offence this morning, I would want to end by apologising. If I have stirred up more questions than given answers, tough, that's what you do in a short sermon. We'll come back to them if you tell me what the issues are. And what I do hope is particularly for every person who is single in this church, and we in Windsor have a very high percentage, partly because of our age profile, of people who are single, that you will not be afraid to say what you think or what you think needs to be said or not to be said on this issue. God has blessed us as a community here with a wide diversity of backgrounds and experience in life. It's to be celebrated, it's to be faced, it's to be enjoyed and rejoiced in, it's to be shared and it's to be carried together. And may God give us the grace to do that. I'd like us to sing this hymn at the end I like this hymn Um, I was introduced to it many years ago the context in which I was introduced to it was a very tragic context and the hymn was being used in the context of a very sad set of circumstances um, in which the words of the hymn force us to think that however we actually define things as human beings and however we understand what is right and what is wrong the reality is that there is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And 
I would hope that nothing that I have said this morning would ever leave anybody feeling that what I'm saying is God does not accept you because of your sexual orientation or because you're not married or whatever. God's love for you as someone he has created, God's grace to you as someone for whom Christ died, extends to you as much as to the person beside you or to anybody else in this building. That is not for me to lay down the criteria of who God loves and who God doesn't love, who God accepts and who God won't accept. There's no point in me standing up here and saying God accepts you as you are and lying about it and pretending, well, if you fit this class, that class and the other class, he doesn't. He does. And there is a wideness in his mercy that is wider than any church constitution, any set of human rules or regulations. But we work with scripture and we work within the context of scripture and understanding what is appropriate and proper behavior for us. But never denying the wideness of God's mercy to all of us as human beings. And this room must be a place where people feel they can come, whatever their fears, whatever their doubts, whatever their orientation sexually, whatever their interests, whatever their past, whatever their feelings. And know that the words of this hymn are not only true in terms of what God thinks about them, but how we will deal with you as a church community together. So we use the words of this hymn. As a comfort and a challenge, there's a wideness in God's mercy. May the God of peace, 
who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.